Thank you, Paula. Uh, my wife tells me I project, so I think I'm louder than the mic anyway. Uh, I have a three-hour talk to give in 50 minutes, so we'll get started right away. But all things civil photography. Civil photography demonstrably started right in Fort Sumter. I don't need your 3D glasses yet. I'll let you know. Uh, in April of 1861, the Confederates actually shot first, uh, getting to Fort Sumter right after it fell. There are numerous pictures by, by two different photographic firms. Um, take it here at Fort Sumter, and from there, Civil War photography really branched out from there. And most of these photographers are from the East, and most of those Eastern photographers, I'm not talking about the people working in studios, I mean the relative handful of Civil War photographers that went and followed the armies and took documentary photos out of battlefields, most of them either worked for, or were trained by, or learned from Matt and Brady himself. Um, they would go out with rather bulky equipment like cameras like this, fragile glass plates, and actually live um, in these darkroom wagons, sometimes in tents next to them, sometimes in the wagons themselves with little lean-tos next to it. And you can see some of the equipment that they brought with them. It's a very difficult and expensive task. Right? In focusing in on this particular photographer, you can see that he is holding the most important implement of his business, the glass plate. Um, as you learn from the quiz a little bit, there are a lot of different photographic formats, of course. Photography was about 20 years old at the time of the Civil War. By then, in the early days, we were making daguerreotypes and other things that made single positives. In other words, you could only make one, and it was really difficult to make another. But in the 1850s, the growth of the wet plate process was uh, uh, becoming popular. It was really good in that it made a negative. Okay, for the first time, you had a negative that you could actually print multiple copies with. Also, if you take this and put it on a back, black background, it looks like that. Okay, and that, when you do that, is called an ambrotype. So if you see an ambrotype, it's just a photographic negative with a black background on it. But you can take the negative version of it and put it on light-sensitive paper in the sun for 20 seconds, 2 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, depending on uh, the recipe you're going, and you can make a print, and another print, and another print forever. And these photographers made it as far away as Brownsville, Texas. They're going to make it out toward uh, San Francisco Bay. Uh, there's a prison out on Alcatraz Island. Some of these things were actually censored. But it was a real pain in the rear to photograph the entire Civil War. And I think this illustrates it pretty well. Hmm. You know, I'm a Civil War photographer. I'm down in Mobile Bay. I have six weeks to spare. Let me take ten, ten different railroads and coaches, and I'm going to go up to Bentonville, North Carolina. I have a few more weeks. I've always wanted to see Pea Ridge or Prairie Grove. Let me go to Nashville a few weeks later. So this is what it's like to photograph the West in the Civil War. To photograph the East, there they are. <laughs> so where do you think all the photos are taken? Where would you rather take photos? In the East. Um, and, you know, you also have the population centers there. This is where the photos will sell. Um, this is where most of the photographic houses are, and this is where the uh, photographic chemicals are coming in. Uh, Southern photography had always stopped by that point, at least out on battlefields, because the blockade really worked. Photochemicals did not come in in great proliferation. And then you were going to have, you know, those photographers in the South, like George Cook in your quiz here, focusing his efforts upon the very lucrative portraiture trade. You can make a lot of money taking portraits and almost no money taking documentary images. But in the North, there are a handful of Civil War photographers going out in the field. And in 1861, between Fort Sumter and actually, uh, you know, when anything really started happening, this is the type of thing they photographed. The boys of 1861, and for better or for worse, this is what they look like. They're in ill-fitting clothing. Uh, I mean, really, it doesn't even look like it's right. Oh, my God, this guy's got his pants loused into his uh, socks. Something great actors say, oh, no, they didn't do that. Well, here we have him in 1861 actually dressing this way. 
Um, and these are the boys of 61, and this is the type of stuff Civil War photographers had available in 1861. Um, this would be, you know, I wouldn't want to be that guy. This is a pretty good early test for some of the crazy stuff Civil War soldiers are going to do both on the battlefield and with a camera. How long did it take to take that picture? I don't know. We don't have any of the pictures of the failure. So <laughs> 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 these guys, these are probably the ones who fell off. The <laughs> but soon enough, things would happen. Of course, you know, you have the battle at first full run. Matthew Brady tried to take pictures at that, but um, he found it much more difficult. First of all, if you're a Union photographer, you need your side to win to actually get access to the battlefield. Um, he lost his place. No photos taken on the first battlefield, but you do have this one taken in March of 1862 after the Confederates left of not-so-fresh graves on the Bull Run battlefield. Uh, the visitor center is actually right there, the parking lot. Uh, this is where Griffin's guns actually are. And, um, you know, this is a first in American history. Not only was the Battle of Bull Run by far the bloodiest battle up in, up, uh, in American history up to that time, but you also have all these photographic firsts happening such as these not-so-fresh graves. And then by April, the following month, 1862, on the Virginia Peninsula, you have fresh Vermont graves photographed at Lee's Mill or Dam Number 1. Um, two months later, they're able to secure a fresh field hospital, an ongoing field hospital, at Savage's Station. These soldiers had just been in battle the day before at the Battle of Gaines's Mill. Um, and then here they are being treated, and here they are being captured, actually, the next day when the Confederates are known to have overrun this particular position. That's June. August 1862, fresh graves on the Cedar Mountain battlefield, a little hard to see in the shadow of Cedar Mountain, and then dead horses on the Cedar Mountain battlefield. These photographers are getting closer and closer to the one thing they really want, the public is curious about, and that is, of course, human carnage on a battlefield, which they achieved for the first time in American history, first time in world history that anybody had ever seen photos like this before, was, of course, at the battlefield of Antietam, where Civil War photographers recorded 20 glass negatives of dead soldiers on a battlefield, and it was not what they expected. Before the Civil War, during the Civil War, you heard stories of war, and even today, even with video and everything, soldiers can't tell you what it's like, but we can try to approximate it um, as best we can, even if we'll never get there. But back then, people pictured war as you are charging against the enemy gloriously. You're carrying a flag, and if you are killed, it is on the top of that enemy fort, and that flag is still in your hand or draped across your breast, and maybe there's a little bit of blood running from the side of your mouth. It's not this. It's not a heap of bodies far from home, faces pressed to the earth, um, uh, lonely, unrecognizable, not a good death, okay? And these 20 images shocked the nation. When people saw them in Matthew Brady's studio in New York, uh, the most famous account goes, you know, something like in the New York Times, if Mr. Brady has not taken the bodies and laid them on our doorsteps and laid them in our dooryards, he has done something very like it. And uh, you would think maybe that people saw this and said, we have to end this horrible war. And some did. But just like today, it's not that easy. Other people, just as many people seemingly, saw them and said, we have to continue this struggle, including Abraham Lincoln, so that these dead shall not have died in vain. This is very difficult to do, by the way, as we'll see. It was not accomplished much during the war. The following month, as was evident in your quiz, um, you're going to have three photos taken out at Corinth, Mississippi. Here's uh, Colonel Rogers that you heard about in the quiz. Um, the following May, you're going to have one photo of dead soldiers at the sunken road in Fredericksburg. Um, at Gettysburg, 37 pictures of dead soldiers. And let me encourage anybody that's on the fringes maybe to come in toward the center, because once I start showing 3D, it's not going to be in 3D the further out you are. So feel free to move in if you'd like. I think the people in the middle might be nice. Um, <laughs> 37 pictures of Gettysburg more than anywhere else. 
eight around Fredericksburg in the 1864 campaign, six at Spotsylvania, and 22 at Petersburg for a total of 97. Exactly. 97 known photos of dead soldiers on Civil War battlefields. So that means that every photo you've seen of a dead soldier, if that soldier is actually dead, in the Ken Burns series, in every Civil War book that's ever been in any of these raffles, comes from one of those 97. Okay? This was a difficult recipe. First of all, all these photos, with the exception of three, are taken in the East, and these are all northern photographers. You needed a Union victory in order to get access to the battlefield. You needed to be staged with the soldiers right away to get on that battlefield before the soldiers were buried. It only happened seven, on seven occasions during the war for fewer than 100 photographs. And of course, photographers did uh, accomplish something else, which again was admirably noted in our quiz here. What seems to be just a photo on a beach of people kind of just standing there upon closer inspection is not George Cook's photo, but another photographer, I believe it's Haas and Peel, actually secured a photo of a Union ironclad firing on Fort Moultrie and into the Confederate positions around Charleston Harbor. You can see Union monitor ships off in the distance. And this is an actual combat photograph. The combat photos of the Civil War that we wish existed, of big lines of troops fighting back and forth and whatnot, those don't exist. Uh, photos took four seconds, eight seconds, 12 seconds. They'd be blurry, not to mention it's dangerous um, to be that close. And if you're farther away, it's smoky. You can't see anything. There's a photo of battle at the battlefield of Nashville during the battle, but all you see is smoke. Um, so this is the type of thing we have for combat photography. Now, these photos, whether they're, they're of the dead or combat or just portraits, can be put on large mounts like this. Note that this was from a big 7 by 9 inch negative. Um, and they would be printed and sold like this. But you could not print something like this in a newspaper, um, a half-tone photograph. So they would give it to an artist, and that artist would take some liberties, throw some soldiers in there, and turn it into a woodcut or an engraving. And these could be printed in Harper's Weekly or Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper. You can see them that way, or you could uh, have an artist color it and sell a print. So that one photo could be seen by hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million people, um, even back then, within weeks or months of when they were taken. That's pretty fast dissemination for the time. Now, all these photos that you've seen in books and whatnot, the original negatives, they exist, first of all. One of the biggest myths of Civil War photography is there's a lot of them. Um, is that these things all expired in greenhouses or something like that. The ones that expired in greenhouses were like the bad plates that the guys failed with, the photographers, and they were left over. We know this because we have the catalogs. We know which photos were taken. And those photos were in the Library of Congress, the National Archives, and the Smithsonian Institution. Overwhelming. We know where all these uh, negatives are. This shows Matthew Brady's collection when it was in his nephew's house in the 1930s or 40s. And each one of these sleeves is one of those glass plate negatives that contains an image over which some of us at least obsess. But luckily these ended up, uh, at least some losers in the room are really interested. <laughs> uh, if you're civil photography, what you do is go to the Library of Congress. I'll bet you a lot of you have already. Go just type prints and photographs into Google. The Library of Congress will come up. There's a Civil War section. And you can not only search for the images you'd like, but you can download them in a crazy High resolution. For those of you who don't know what I mean by that, it means you can zoom in and in and in and in again, and it just does not lose resolution. Remember, these negatives are 4 by 10 inches or 7 by 9 inches. It's sometimes bigger. Do you remember the 35 millimeter negatives that most of us grew up with? Okay, An inch tall, just over an inch wide, and they had this grain to them. These things are 40 times bigger on average, and it's a chemical sheet. There is no grain except at the molecular level. 
So you can zoom into these things almost forever, and it's great. You can take a photo like this and start to focus in on these guys and see it, you know, and, and, and look at that in particular. You can zoom in and get further and say, oh, wow, some of these stones are still the same in the, in the side of the building. Who would do something like that? Um, and you can see one of the children of Mr. Robinson um, on Henry Hill, and this guy's holding a cannonball that he no doubt picked up while he's there. You can take a photo like this, taken again of that waterhole on uh, on Henry Hill at uh, Bull Run, and I wondered, I scanned it really high and, and wondered whether you could read any of the gravestones. And one, one, I could read well enough to see that it said JTM Lexington, Virginia. And you know, as bloody of a battle as it was, there's only so many people from Lexington, Virginia, and only one fits, that's John T. McCorkle. He's a school teacher, 22 years old, Lexington, Virginia. He's in the Rockbridge Grays Stonewall Brigade. Um, and he died right there. And, you know, his body has been moved into a Confederate cemetery since. But I think with the limited number of Civil War photos we have, we have to do stuff like this. This is our, our duty or our job. Even taking the more disturbing photos of that, such as this young soldier um, uh, uh, below the visitor center at Antietam, uh, if you turn it upside down and zoom in, you can see the thread count on this guy's shirt that someone at home probably made for him. You can see his curly hair that he probably kind of worked hard to... To, to make sure it looked the way he wanted it. You can see probably growing his first beard here, okay? Now, this isn't a happy photo to look at, but again, this is as much as we can ever learn about him. We don't know anything about him other than that he's a Confederate and that he fell in Moomaw's field at Antietam. So I think that studying these things, these precious resources, even of the dead, can help us increase our understanding of the Civil War. You can zoom into other photos, and I had trouble with this one before, but here's a photo of kind of a brutal uh, cockfight that's happening, um, but you, these guys are holding little whips, they're drinking and everything like that. That's uh, Union Commander, Ninth Corps Commander, uh, Division Commander, Orlando B. Wilcox. And here you actually see that uh, this guy's watching intently here, but in two of the photos, he's very careful to hold this up. And you can see that in this brutal event, um, at least not a happy event for the, for the cops involved, um, that he's reading the most genteel of all American publications, the Atlantic Monthly. Um, and in that same photo, here's somebody smiling. Yes, people smile during the Civil War. Do you know why they smile during the Civil War? Because they're just like we are. Okay? It's tempting to think, oh, they're in black and white. They walked everywhere. They lived outside most of the time. We must be different. No! And I've studied this stuff every day for now for 32 years, and that's the one thing I've really learned about the Civil War is that they are just like us. And they smile just like we did. Even at Miller's Cornfield. This is Mr. Miller's house. The cornfield's right behind this house. Um, and, uh, you know, you look and zoom in on the porch there, and you can see, even with dead all over, they lost everything. Their whole corn crop and everything. Um, and yet, there she is smiling on the porch. Um, building a bridge at North Ham. Here's another guy smiling. And, of course... Uh, my favorite smirk of the Civil War, coming from the, my favorite woman of the entire Civil War, Kate Chase, the daughter of Sam and Pete Chase, <laughs> so socially competent that she took Washington by storm at age 19 and told the First Lady, Mrs. Lincoln, I would be happy to have you call on me at any time. Yeah. <laughs> she deserved that smirk. <laughs> and thought she was going to be First Lady when she thought her dad, was, who wasn't going to marry again, was going to be president. Um, and you can also learn about Civil War photography by taking different photos and comparing them and looking at them. Here, a pretty nondescript photo showing pontoon boats, probably bigger boats than you thought they were. Um, but I'm interested in this house in the background over here. You can see that the bottom portion's been ripped up. Well, there are other photos that show that particular house. You can see there's the portion I was pointing to there. Um, here's a couple of the United States colored troops. and a, Oh, a photographic wagon. Let's check that out. You can actually see inside the wagon. 
here's some of the equipment over here. Oh, where's the actual equipment they're using? Oh, that's the guy behind the camera who's saying, hey, there's a barrel. Here's some guys. Let's give them some guns and stage one of the most famous photos of the entire <laughs> Which, even before I ever knew this, where is this photographer during this supposed battle? He's like standing out between the lines, taking a 15-minute photograph. By the time he sets up, it's somehow not getting shot or anything like that. So question your sources when you see them. <laughs> Here's a photo, too, that... Uh, you know, it's taken supposedly at Blackburn Sport at Bull Run. Uh, there's six different photos taken of it. And what you can see is that there's an S-curve in Bull Run here. You can see clearly, especially in 3D, a nice little rivulet running out here. This took me less than an hour after consulting with the Manassas National Battlefield. No one had ever lined it up before. And I simply figured out where the Confederate Railroad Bridge was and went out there and within less than an hour found this sitting there, a perfect rivulet and everything like that. Now, the purpose in saying this and telling you this stuff is not to do my own more, something I'm not shy about doing, and you know me. Um, but it's to say that I have no claim on doing this stuff. Any of you all can browse these photos at the Library of Congress or bring your favorite sourcer and your source material, original account, out to a battlefield and just learn. It's really easy. And so I always like to claim that the people who speak at these roundtables have no particular claim on making discoveries. We all can. Um, you can also take the Civil War photos, of course, something I love to do, and find the same places now, including this cool photo of a USS, a U.S. monitor, and it's actually a minesweeper. Check that out. And going into the James River with a net in front of it. But, you know, there's a signal tower there. It's pretty well documented where it was, so it's not that hard to go back, find the same hill, figure out where that particular monitor was at that moment. You can go to North Anna. You can go to a lot of battlefields that many of you probably get letters in the mail from the Civil War Trust about including the Jericho Mill Battlefield. Here's Jericho Mill. This is the North Anna River and two Union Corps across on this pontoon bridge. Well, the ruins are still there uh, across the way, and you can go there and see exactly where the pontoon bridge was, exactly where these guys were drying their clothing and stacking their muskets. You can even follow the troops up from the mill across there and see the road that these engineers are building in this photograph, and they are just perfectly, the road is just perfectly there, built 150 years ago, never improved or anything, and there it is. And I think, uh, you can put on your glasses now if you'd like to, I think, uh, you know, one of the things I do with the Civil War Trust as the education guy or as a battlefield guy or someone who's just obsessed with this stuff is that whether I'm using photos or jumping around getting excited about stuff or pointing to something on a battlefield, I'm trying to get something that's going to get you a little more interested or to say ultimately, that's what it was like. Even if just for a second, now I understand a little bit more. And that's really what we're trying to do all of us in trying to get closer to this event. Now, one thing about Civil War photos is that about 80% of them are born, the outdoor documentary ones, were taken in 3D. What that means is that they were taken with a twin lens camera and I looked apart. And when you take those and mount them separately and look at them in a separate viewer, in a special viewer, they look 3D. Um, so the photographers took them that way, not as a gimmick. They took them that way as if they would never be seen any other way. Therefore, they took them along the ground. Therefore, they always put something in the foreground, something in the middle ground, and something in the background. And that's why this photo appears in 3D, because you have those things to look at. Um, and you can see that the one in the camp, right from 1861 to 65, they were doing this. And these especially work much better from the middle, if you're interested in that. Um, you can see why this great photo of the White House taken around the uh, around time of the Civil War has a tree in the foreground. And man, that building looks a lot more impressive in 3D than it would in 2D. 
Even the fort at Fort Sumter, which had been reduced in size by a couple of stories already, you can see not only the damage to the fort, but where that damage has been repaired. These are the gabion baskets filling in the holes from the original Confederate bombardment. And here at Relay, Maryland, still, anybody ever been to this bridge, the Thomas Viaduct by chance? It's near BWI Airport. Still to this day, the largest stone bridge ever built on a curve in the world. It's huge. And here you have a great 3D photo with some of the troops sent there to help defend it in May of 1861. At Relay, Maryland is where you choose whether you go to Washington or Baltimore. Well, if the Union didn't hold this, the Confederates could have gone from Harper's Ferry right into Washington by train. Um, so it was good that they held this early. And I always like showing this because I showed it in 2D before, but all of a sudden, you can see the Warrington Turnpike now in the foreground, now one of the busiest intersections in America, for any of you who've ever spent enough time at Bull Run there. And you can just see the difference between the fence and the road and the iconic stone house that still stands right there today. You can go out and take 3D photos yourself. All you need is your iPhone or whatever phone. Take one here, move two and a half inches over, whatever your eye width is, take another one, and then you can just use a program to manipulate it so that it works with these particular glasses. Um, another photo I showed in 2D earlier as well, and by the way, let me say, since uh, um, if there are any real photo freaks in the room, like really, like, wow, this is cool stuff, I run a photographic seminar every year, and this year's, uh, in October, is going to be based at Manassas, me, Bobby Crick, and William C. Davis, and others will be doing all sorts of cool stuff there. But again, here's the water hole. It still fills with water near the parking lot whenever it rains, and again, the ground is just like that today when you go back. And in another great 3D photo, because you not only have a great foreground, but in this case, the foreground is actually Confederate-clad children seemingly facing off against Union cavalry at Sudley Springs Ford on Cat Harkin Run. Beautiful 3D photo. And let me tell you, they look much better in print. And I know Cindy has one of the 3D books. I'm sure she'd be willing to let you look at some of these. They look really good in print, um, if you're interested, much better than on the screen. 3D photography can put you right on the deck of the USS Monitor where the dents from its fight with the uh, CSS Virginia um, just months before this photo were taken are still particularly evident, I think, in 3D. And you're, you're somehow right on the deck when you see it in, in the proper format. And here, this photo of the field hospital I showed you earlier just looks much cooler. Huge difference. Um, and you can see the men of the 16th New York with their distinctive um, corn cob hats there. You can see people ministering to one another, actually working. You can see there's undulations in the ground. You can see accoutrements, equipment, and guns um, uh, leaning on the back fence there. And looking at Antietam here, um, a beautiful photo of uh, Knapp's Pennsylvania battery right on the battlefield just three days after the battle. Here's a dead horse in the foreground. And this one shows the battlefield maybe better than any other single photo. These are the Eastwoods. It goes off in the 2D version off to the Northwoods there. And everything in the distance you see here is actually the triangular plot of land that the Civil War Trust sent many of you. Um, about where the trust has just helped to preserve the center of the battlefield, and we have um, raised enough money for that, and so that's great news. Some of the dead soldiers at Fredericksburg, I showed you a different version of it, and in this one, um, you can actually see just a lot of those who have already been buried here. And this is just one photo of one section taken outside of town, and it starts to get you to approach just the volume of people even dying in the hospital. And of course, to Gettysburg, where you have more 3D photos taken during the war than just about anywhere else. Um, but Gettysburg is not in the top five of the top most photographed places during the entire Civil War. Um, here's a guy uh, on the first day's battlefield. You see why this Brady assistant is in the foreground now, um, looking toward the Lutheran Theological Seminary on that first day. 
Um, just yards away from where that one was taken is a great serial photo of General Lee's headquarters. This is somebody's home, remember, for you know decades before suddenly one climactic battle came and changed this forever. Uh, the Civil War Trust just purchased this house as well, and now we're trying to tear down the hotel that is around it. The battle, of course, flowed from the first day out towards Cemetery Hill. And again, you can see the Baltimore Pike in the foreground, looking through the iconic Evergreen Gatehouse over uh, into Evergreen Cemetery, where the Gettysburg Address would later be given. You can see a soldier down through there in Cemetery Hill itself, Union battle position in the distance. And this is why photographers love places like Little Round Top with lots of rocks and lots of fortifications. Um, it was a 3D photographer's dream, even if the 2D photos didn't look quite as good. The dead horses on the Trossel farm, where you can actually see, um, still to this day, that Union artillery shell hole, or Confederate artillery shell hole there, with some of the 80 horses that were killed as part of Biglow's batteries. Horses that were too big to bury, so they gathered them together in a big heaps and burned them, and the smell was just unbearable from miles away. And you can see, even though all the dead had been buried, the photos at Culp's Hill with the pockmarked trees um, from, from the volume of fire, as well as the distinctive boulders that are still there. So heavy was the volume of fire here that this was a cleared field 25 years after this photo was taken. It was called the Dead Tree Area, and it has only grown up in the last uh, 80 years. And a photo you may have seen, a particularly sad one, but maybe this soldier that you've seen before looks a little uh, taller than you expected. Um, you can go back there today, still see the lichen on this very boulder, still see this exact crack right there, and lined up with other photos as well. And the photos of the dead are, of course, particularly sad and troubling when you start looking at them in detail. In fact, you know, this is what we mean. This is not the glorious death. These guys are from Georgia and South Carolina, most likely. And here you focus in on one guy who is not only face down, but in being dragged over toward where he is, his pants have come down and they're sitting around his knees there in just complete opposition of everything that, that, that is 19th century America. There's no way that this soldier a few days earlier could have even imagined an act like this or could have seen himself in this situation. Imagine if this is your son or if this is your, your husband or your brother. It's really um, important that we try to humanize these people that a few days earlier, all these guys charged into battle full of life thinking maybe something would befall them but hardly able to witness the horrible scene that we're seeing here. Um, of course, we actually have photos, too, of the Gettysburg Address. Um, the Evergreen Gatehouse in the background, you can see the swell, that's the speaker stand, and there's the tent that uh, Edward Everett, actually, who could not wait more than two hours between using the bathroom, and his speech was two hours long. So that tent is there, so he could relieve himself right before and right after. I know you wanted to know that. <laughs> uh, take our last swallow again. You'll need it one more time, though. So... I wanted to talk about this. All these photos I'm showing is in the east. We know where the east is, right? It's really clear, but I'm still a little unclear on how this works. Uh, <laughs> if you go south and east of Petersburg to the east coast, you're in the west. Okay, I know we all know how this works. It's like where the eastern armies, uh, you know, western armies really ended up marching to. But unfortunately, it's not even like this. The way most of us see it is unfortunately like that. <laughs> It was actually like that during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln couldn't believe it when his soldiers in 1862 were capturing Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, Island Number 10. Hey, we wanted Shiloh. We got Nashville. We got 100,000 square miles of Confederate territory. And then Robert E. Lee wins a couple of battles near Richmond, and it all goes away. And Lincoln's like, what? 
Uh, that's a paraphrase. <laughs> uh, a couple of Confederate victories in the East could equal massive victories in the West, and there it is. You still have it to this day. You talk to site managers and historians out at Chickamauga or Vicksburg or, or around Franklin, and they're like, hey, this is really important, and I agree. There's no doubt that Vicksburg is more important than Gettysburg. I don't know how you could argue otherwise, but yeah, since the Civil War and today, there is an Eastern focus. That's where the media centers are. That's the places people care about, and that's the places more people care about now and then. But you do have some photos taken in the West. Maybe 5% of Civil War photos are actually taken in the West. This is one of my favorites. Not even a great photo, but Joseph Hooker standing tall in the shadow of Lookout Mountain, which he had captured not long before this. You have that rascal Dan Butterfield standing there next to him as well. But you can actually go back there and just line that thing up perfectly. Um, and in one of my greatest coups, I actually had a guy from Vicksburg, Mississippi, play Joe Hooker. <laughs> Not happy. <laughs> he was the tallest guy there, so alas. You know, and where the Union troops were going to be long enough, they set up permanent photographic studios. And there are lots of photos taken here out on a, a point lookout here. And these guys, you know, I know that they're Civil War soldiers. I know they did some brave things. But there's no reason to risk yourself. <laughs> By the way, when you stand out there, and I have, it's no fake. It's not like it just looks like it's a long drop. You're going to die. <laughs> these guys seem to be in competition with one another. <laughs> where we have 300 photos taken at Port Hudson and 500 at Richmond and 400 at Brandy Station, 280 at Gettysburg, 3 at Shiloh. And this is one. Maybe 28 or 29 at Vicksburg. You, you know, maybe you have 26 or 27 at Nashville, but you have 3 at Shiloh. Okay, so you can see why the East is, is much more well-known at least photographically. But I'm like focusing in on these again for that same topic. I mean, here these guys are leaving their ships with really heavy loads, and they've got, what, seven-inch board they're balancing on like it's the Olympics or something. And then I started looking and seeing that this is common. Uh, they couldn't get somebody a wider plank to leave the ship. I mean, where's OSHA? You know, when you... <laughs> Either way, I know these guys are brave, you know, charging positions and everything like this, but Civil War soldiers are crazy off the battlefield, too. Those are the three at Shiloh? What's that? That's all three of the ones? No, I showed two of the three are of those boats, almost identical, and then one more of a battery at Pittsburgh Landing that's right up from there. And, you know, that's it. A photographer landed, took three photos right near the landing, and left. Um, <laughs> that's very frustrating to us. Um, another thing I wanted to get out is, you know, I'm moving through the war somewhat from 1861 to 62, and now we're at 64. Well, I just wanted to say again that I'm, I haven't really focused on the photos of Atlanta. There's a good 150 photos taken of Civil War Atlanta in 1864 and 1866. Um, and just by spending some time on the train after I downloaded these pictures, I was able to link 40 of them together at these forts, uh, Confederate forts north and northwest of Atlanta here, from Fort K over to here. Now, right in the middle of it is where that famous white house stands called the Ponder House. You've seen the picture probably. It's a house with, you know, its whole side is missing. There's shell holes in it. And you can barely see it in the distance right over here. But I already, you know, this, this location is pretty well known. So, okay, well, near there, there's a fort and there's a tree. Okay, well, that tree appears in two other photos here. Okay, so now I, I'm getting the lay of the land a little bit better. Okay, well, now that I know that that, that tree is there, I was able to link it to these two photos, and I was like, well, these seem to show the same thing in the background. I wonder if I can link them together. Well, you can. 
because there's distinctive dimples in, in sandbags, and you can see the configuration of the sandbags are the same. You have to do it a lot of time on the train. You see a little pine thing sticking out here. And then I was able to look in the background of this one and say, hey, I see a little shed back there. Oh, that looks familiar. I wonder if this shed happens to be the famous, well, famous through a symbol of photography here, Union picket posts that you may have seen before. There's three photos of these guys taken in this picket post, and I wonder if this was the same building. So I look at them side by side from opposite directions and say, okay, well, I see a damaged sort of woodshed in both of them. Huh. I see some earthworks in both of them, and I see a curved tree, you know, in both of them right on it. Okay, well, I'm already convinced, but I want to be more certain. So when you look at some of the trees, since they're looking in opposite direction, they should show the same trees in the middle ground. Okay. Well, here they are. God, that looks like the same tree from opposite direction. Um, let me reverse this one. Oh, yeah. That's the exact same tree from two different directions. So I'm, sh I'm showing you how easy this actually is if you just start thinking that way. If you're a spatially related person, not a spacey person, <laughs> spatial relationships are one of your things, do some photo research. You can really break some new ground that way. Of course, um, Sherman will take Atlanta, he'll march to the sea, and then in, in 1865 we'll begin marching northward through the Carolinas. Um, the uh, Confederate capital of South Carolina, Columbia, will be burned, probably from what I can tell, by you know, Union and Confederates. Uh, uh, some of the Confederates before they left, and the Union probably helping to burn it then. They came to grips. Uh, Joseph E. Johnson, in his greatest offensive maneuver, if you ask me, at the Battle of Bentonville, lashes out against Sherman, biggest battle ever fought in North Carolina, um, but he can't quite make enough gains to, to really make a difference. Um, ultimately, Sherman uh, will force Johnston to fall back. And this whole time, Robert E. Lee is holed up in Petersburg. He doesn't, he doesn't like being much holed up. He's been there for nine months already. The city is being bombarded at that point. Um, and Lee does not like being trapped. And there's one incredible photo, this one, of Robert E. Lee on Traveler in the streets of Petersburg. There's only one print of this one. If you don't see it, it's only one book from what I can tell, um, at least legally. Um, and here he is, you know, where Robert E. Lee for nine months is throwing one Confederate division or two Confederate divisions against mighty Union forces of an entire corps or two corps. Every time that Robert E. Lee is able to keep them away from the South Side Railroad, push them back just with sheer audacity and powerful attacks. Um, ultimately, Lee knows that eventually he'll be outflanked and forced to surrender the cities anyway. He wants to give them up. He launches a massive assault at half his army at Fort Stedman under John B. Gordon. They capture the fort. They move on from there. But mighty Union reinforcements again come back and win the day. The Confederates are pushed back. <coughs> Union General Grant realizes that Lee must have weakened himself in order to make this attack, launches assaults along the lines, makes some key gains, and that leads toward Grant's final campaign. After fighting on Lewis Farm and then White Oak Road, the Confederates actually uh, are, are decimated at Five Forks. And here you can see some of the Confederate prisoners. I've always thought this guy looks like he's talking on his cell phone. <laughs> he's got the hose down and everything. It's the day after this. The Confederates will um, be spaced six feet apart um, at, their main, at their main lines. And in a couple of places, the Union will break through the Confederate lines. And Richmond and Petersburg will fall. And finally, the photographers who have been waiting for nine, ten months to finally see Richmond and Petersburg camp. And that's when they recorded some of the 22 photos of the dead here at Petersburg, particularly sad casualties. None of them are happy. Some, all of them are sad, but this is April 3rd, 1865. Now, they didn't know the end was near, but man, they're six days away from Appomattox. So I consider the death of these soldiers, especially the particularly young ones, to be uh, particularly sad, if I may. 
Um, here's one too of another guy who clearly suffered in his last moments. Um, uh, the photographer took several pictures of him placing an implement there. Um, in another photo of the same soldiers, you can actually see a dead African American um, laying in the same photo. Maybe it's the only photo of a dead African American actually on a Civil War battlefield. But this wasn't me. In Civil War times, about three years ago, someone was looking at this guy and said, oh, I, he's got interesting boots. He's got, you know, kind of checkered calico pants. He's got a ripped up vest. Hey, I recognize him. He's very much alive. The next day, we had a photo taken in Petersburg. <laughs> okay, maybe I have a problem with that. I'm like, I was always kind of bothered, though, that I couldn't see the side of his vest to look for the rip or anything like that. But then, just last year, years later, I came across this photo, and I said, hey, that's him. And there it is. The thing has got the same rip in the exact same place. So what this photo is, is not the only known photo of a dead African American on a battlefield, but it is the only known photo of a live person playing dead next to a dead person. <laughs> <laughs> I get this. I can't figure this one out. Here's another photo taken of the same fort. Well, when you zoom in on some of these guys here, I notice here's the guy. He's got the boots. He's got the rip in his vest. It looks like him. He's got the same shirt, but no calico pants. Is this guy changing his pants during the photo shoot? Is it not the same guy? And everybody happens to have the same ripped vest or the same exact look. Um, is that his foot a little blurred? blurred? What's that? Isn't his foot a little blurred too? Yeah. Well, he's not dead yet. So he's definitely not dead. Unless maybe, maybe decomposition and putrefaction have already set in. Sorry, this would be disrespectful if this guy was actually dead, but it's, he's not. And even on top of that, not even uh, pretending. His name is C.C. Roach. He's not even pretending to be dead, laying right next to him as well. Of course, during this time, Robert E. Lee is still trying to uh, move westward so he can move southward and hook up with Joseph E. Johnson in North Carolina. They find an Appomattox station, but you know the end of this. The following day, Robert E. Lee will be forced to do the most painful thing of his life, a man is to surrender his mighty army, the strongest army the Confederacy ever had. Um, and here he is riding away from the McLean House. As you might know, the McLean House was going to be moved uh, like so many other buildings were. They stacked the bricks up. They never moved it. And then people came and relieved uh, the, the, Mr. McLean of his bricks and whatnot. And, uh, but they did do a great job rebuilding the house just on the same spot. They did a really nice job with the original foundation still to this day. The interior of the house, poor Wilma McLean, you know, lived near Bull Run, uh, moved to the middle of nowhere, still the middle of nowhere. I mean, it takes you two hours to get there, no matter where you are. Uh, even in a car, uh, moves all the way up to Appomattox. And then, you know, people are, you know, they surrender in his parlor, or the surrender takes place in his parlor, and people take everything from his house because they knew something important had happened. You can go back there today. Uh, they brought some of the original stuff back, but very little of it, actually. The courthouse itself burned in the 1930s, I believe it is, but the walls are original, and you can go back there. That's where the visitor center is. Did anybody go off for Appomattox 150? All right, all right. That was really, I hope you enjoyed it. Very cool. Um, in these various photos, you can see Wilbur McLean himself actually standing um, along the fence with the soldiers, uh, you know, in the most famous part portion of his life, no doubt. And in some of the other photos, you can see kids and families and whatnot. But I like this one with the world's tallest top hat. Um, <laughs> it actually isn't the top hat, but it certainly looks like it's not part of the light pole. And, of course, people that think it's a top hat think, well, that's a tall top hat. It could only be one person. It's Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure of it. And I'm going to sell you that photo. Here's <laughs> <laughs> like in your quiz, the only definitely confirmed photo of Abraham Lincoln in Gettysburg. But I'll tell you what, there are a lot of other people with top hats here. And every one of them is Lincoln. If you look on eBay, that's exactly what you're drawing. You can see an 1880s photo of a guy in a top hat 
and everybody is certain it's Lincoln. They want to charge you this, and then they call me up and they get mad when I tell them that it's impossible. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> Lee surrenders, but these men who had actually surrendered already are making their way. They're walking back down to North Carolina to Greensboro, and they are in Greensboro along with Joe Johnson's troops who haven't been surrendered yet. In the meantime, Johnston and uh, uh, William Trump's Sherman are working out surrender terms here at Bennett's Place in North Carolina. It's a fascinating story in itself. Um, it took a couple of weeks because they tried to exceed their authority in every way, but eventually he would be brought to surrender there. Um, there will be more Confederate surrenders, as was discussed uh, by our quizmaster as well. Um, you're going to have people surrendering in the Trans-Mississippi, at Galveston, Texas, and in uh, Oklahoma in May and June of 1865. Um, on May 10th, 1865, Jefferson Davis is captured in Irwinville, Georgia. He's going to be uh, incarcerated at Fortress Monroe here, and you can still go to that same casemate. They have the, they have a cot, a stool, a chair, the same window there. You can put some loser friend of yours to sit in the same spot. He's not even here to defend himself. It's great. Um, and during this, this is such a packed month, April, of, April and May of 1865. It's crazy. Uh, on April, I think it's 5th. 1865, we have Abraham Lincoln, after an inglorious landing in a rowboat, um, lands at Richmond and is walking up Main Street here and is just dogged and flocked upon by, you know, these recently freed African Americans who were enjoying their first days of freedom since the Union Army came in. A fascinating scene. They could have walked by living prison and seen not Union prisoners in the windows, but Confederate prisoners in the windows of their own prison at this point. Um, you know, and on April 14th, 1865, you're going to have, you know, really big uh, ships and, uh, what am I trying to say? Big ships with flags that draped all over them for the re-raising of the flag over Fort Sumter. They brought Major Robert Anderson back for the support event, and they did it with great fanfare. That same day, April 14th, 1865, you have Union Confederate soldiers actually fraternizing. There are accounts that show this. Confederates, Yankees, in Capitol Square, Richmond. The surrender is only five days earlier. And while they might not be the best of friends, they're getting along pretty well, but this is April 14, 1865, the same day after one of the happiest days of his life, Abraham Lincoln attends the theater at Ford's. He wants to go see um, our American cousin, um, and, and you can really see the charm of Laura Keene in this photo, I think, you know, the very popular actress and producer of the show. Um, you know the story, Abraham Lincoln is sitting right in that chair in that box. Uh, he's there with his wife and two guests. Uh, John Wilkes Smooth goes through that door, which unfortunately there was not a guard standing at the door um, on that particular night. Goes into the box, shoots the president, stabs the Lincoln guest, jumps down to the stage, yells six separate, separate tyrannists, runs out the back door. And Abraham Lincoln, uh, of course, uh, will never recover. He will be brought here across the street to the Peterson House. I'm sure a lot of you have been in this room before. A moving experience. Incredibly, there was an amateur photographer living in the house, just boarding in the Peterson House. And as soon as they took him out, he recorded this incredible photograph. Um, as you know, people were coming in and out to see the president in the many hours until he expired the following morning. Um, there are drawings of it, which early on showed that you know there's more people in the room than could possibly fit. And then the room started to grow. But 
during this time on April 20th. So while Lincoln's, you know, assassinated, Lee is back in his rented home in Richmond. Um, the house is still in a great state of preservation there. There's big buildings around it, but there it is. The Virginia Home Builders Association keeps it in good shape. But it's behind this house on the lower porch where you have some of the most famous photos of the entire Civil War recorded with members of his staff and standing alone. You can see a distinctive crack in the door right there. You can see the bricks he's standing on, and you can see a lot of other things there. And uh, the one where he's actually standing there with the, uh, the cross actually silhouetting him almost right behind his head, you can see actually the photographic steadying um, device that helps cut his, his head still during the 8, 10, 12 second exposure perhaps during this time. So you can go back there and see this just very humble door. It's still there. Who stood there before? A couple of you? All right, it's cool. Um, and you know, you can't help it. When you go back there, you want to get your best look at property, Lee, stand there, get your gaze down, and look exactly like <laughs> No, try it again. No, that doesn't work either. So then you get him, you put on a Confederate coat I found, and then you just tolerably tolerably But looking at the photo itself, if you look at one of the ones, um, you can see things written in the sides of the negatives. And in this one, if you zoom in on it, you can actually see that this one said, don't use, up in the corner. <laughs> and if you look over here, you can see perhaps why, because it says devil on the wall right next to it. So some Union soldier, you know, took the great Confederate commander and said, you're the devil, wrote it in there. And then Brady and his crew noticed it, and for two of the photos, it smudged out. So they clearly realized that that graffiti was there during the uh, photographic session, which is pretty cool stuff. Now, while this is going on, John Wilkes Booth is trying to escape. He makes his way down to uh, past uh, um, into Virginia, and then he will, of course, be trapped and uh, mortally wounded in Garrett's barn, which is now a median strip, actually, uh, uh, at AP Hill. Um, his conspirators, including Bruce Payne, with whom photographers were just obsessed. They took more pictures of him than any of the others because he's a good-looking dude. They took him from the front. They took him from the side. So my knowledge is the first modern mugshot, right? <laughs> Well, he's not disagreeing with me, I'm glad I was there. Um, and of course, they are there, uh, as was mentioned again by our quiz master here, um, July uh, 1865. Uh, they have several cameras all ready to go as they are fixing the nooses to George Atzera, excuse me, David Harold, Lewis Payne, you can see how tall he is, and you can see Mary Surratt, who by all accounts was unable um, to keep to compose herself. She fainted several times, and the end is clearly near. They see the staff up here, but you can see their coffin stacked up and their dug graves sitting right there, and up against the wall there, you can actually see the shovels with which they not only dug the graves, but with which they're going to fill them in. There are accounts, actually, of soldiers actually accidentally falling into the grave and, you know, covering each other up. It was a big fun thing for a while. Uh, there was one soldier throwing up. It was a really hot day. It was, it's an odd day when you read the accounts of that day. Of course, eventually, the, the deed would be done, and here's an incredible action photo taken during the drop. And eventually, you're going to have a photographer position way up above it all, focusing down upon the scaffold and zooming in. You can clearly see the condemned still hanging there, um, and you can see that the coffins have been moved over below that, actually. Um, looking up further from there, you can see the incomplete Washington Monument, showing how close to Washington this was really taken. You can see the powerful edifice of the Smithsonian Institution, and I don't know, even though it's Washington, some of my friends say little and big round top there from Gettysburg. But you can go back there, I'm sure some of you all have, the Washington, D.C. round table actually meets at this particular location, um, which isn't quite as cool as it looks. This building is still there, but the rest of it is a tennis court. Now. Um, most unfortunately, there is a Civil War trail sign, I guess, there now, though. The day after the link, uh, after John Wilkes Booth 
Um, I'm sorry, after Joe Johnston surrenders at Bennett Place, you have the greatest maritime disaster in American history, the Sultana, um, a uh, ship that was bringing back Union prisoners. They were finding on their way home. They're right near Memphis. The thing was overloaded about 12 times the capacity it was supposed to be. They knew the boilers were bad, and the boilers exploded. The thing sank, and you're going to have um, close to 2,000 people, I believe, uh, perish in the waters near Memphis. You have another battle at Palmito Ranch, ironically, a Confederate victory. And then finally, a Union victory parade um, up, to, up Pennsylvania Avenue with the Capitol in the distance, Willard's Hotel here. It's going to curve by the Treasury and go in front of the White House. And there was a big reviewing stand there. You can actually see the troops marching by in a blur. People are watching the troops marching by. Finally, they can see the people they've been reading about for the entire Civil War. Um, I've talked to people. I always say, what, what's your favorite Civil War moment if you could witness it? Some people say battle. Some people say I'm mad. It's getting through the dress. Things like that. Um, but I've had one guy answer and said, you know what I want to do? I want to sit on a fence and watch the armies march by and say, that's the Stonewall Brigade. That is the Iron Brigade. And so on. Okay? And that's what these people are doing. It's not like they have ever, ever opportunity to go out to the battle and see this stuff. They are gawking. You can see Winfield Scott Hancock, who's in charge of the troops of the Veteran Reserve Corps, keeping command there. And that looks like John Gibbon to me, but he seems to be wearing the wrong coat. I want to figure that one out later. But this incredible photo. Some people might say, oh, wow, there's Grant's staff, the Taurus Porter here, Eli Parker. They were at Appomattox, but no. Above the Veteran Reserve Corps soldiers, you have U.S. Grant peering directly into the camera. A side ghosted profile of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, President Andrew Johnson. Union General Wesley Merritt, a bespectacled George Gordon Meade, commander of the Army of the Potomac, uh, Navy Secretary Gideon Wells, William Tecumseh Sherman, and Montgomery Meigs. Unbelievable to have the commanders of the main two Union armies, as well as U.S. Grant, the commander of all the armies, the President, the Secretaries of the Navy and War, all in one picture. Let me tell you, we knew these people were there. But nobody had ever looked at the left side of his negatives. I certainly hadn't until January of this year. There it was sitting there, not at the main right negative, but I just looked below it, out the Library of Congress, the left one, and here it is, in perfect relief, waiting for 150 years for somebody to see. So this is what we're left with. You know, there's carnage galore in the Civil War, 620,000 dead. Uh, there was a study done a couple of years ago that now says it might be a lot higher, but I just find those figures totally unhelpful. It's like their numbers are from 630 to 850. I mean, your weatherman tells you better numbers than that. You know, we're going to get 2 to 80 inches tomorrow. Okay, prepare, prepare, get your bread and milk. Um, so I still say 620, that's plenty. It's 2% of the American population. That would be more than 6.5 million people gone in one war from America today if this were to happen. Of course, they're buried all over the place. Many of the Union soldiers in national cemeteries, a new thing during the Civil War. Confederates in their own Confederate cemeteries. The idea of burying them together at that time was unthinkable. Um, and for those who haven't been to Hollywood Cemetery, here's a person here, a grown man. Okay, This thing is huge for those who haven't seen it before. Um, and, of course, people would go to visit those cemeteries uh, and, and remember the deeds of what they did. The Civil War soldiers, as veterans, were active in trying to get people to remember this stuff. They formed groups. They wrote newspapers. They wrote books. They marched in parades. And they gathered together in reunions. And some of these were on battlefields where they would erect monuments on these battlefields, monuments that we can go back today and actually see a tangible connection to the people who fought during the Civil War. Let's tie this up with some 3D here. So we're left with the battlefields themselves, looking more like World War I, uh, uh, such as this view of Petersburg, than almost anything else. 
Um, you're, you're left with cities and ruins here, Richmond, Virginia. But this is, even if we don't have 3D pictures of all these southern cities that were just destroyed during the Civil War, this is what a lot of them looked like. Here, a ruined railroad depot at Richmond. But none are probably more telling and more effective than this incredible photo showing recently freed African Americans with the ruins of, the, of their city behind them. Um, you know, these people had just gained freedom in the weeks or months just before this. Everything before them, and here you have really one photo that sort of sums up the end of the Civil War better, than, in my opinion, than any other. The veterans themselves, north and south, would gather on battlefields, sometimes actually meeting with early historians who would meet with them in places like this, Little Round Top, where they would drive stakes in the ground or put in monuments to say, this is what happened on this particular spot. As the veterans aged, monumentation really increased, especially in some battlefields like Gettysburg. And, you know, by 1938, there's only several thousand left, 2,000 of whom gathered in Gettysburg in 1938 to see Franklin D. Roosevelt dedicate the Eternal Peace Light Memorial. Um, these guys, their average age is 94. Seven of them died when they came to see the monument being dedicated. They were definitely old by that point. And this generation, these generations, are clearly passing away at this point. But it's incredible to me to contemplate what's going on here in 1938, because here, here are Civil War veterans seeing this monument being lit for the first time at Gettysburg. That is a motion picture camera. You have Civil War soldiers seeing motion pictures. You have them seeing planes flying overhead. You have them seeing tanks rolling over the battlefield. You see color photography, color, color film, actually, of these events. And in this respect, the Civil War was not that long ago. There are people in this room that could have met Civil War veterans. I've met at least 200 people over the years who have met Civil War veterans. I only missed the last one by about a decade as it was. I have been to one-sixth of the Gettysburg anniversaries. And by the time I die in April, I'll, I'll have been to one-third of them. And to that end, the Civil War was not that long ago. And that is my job, more than anything else, is to try to get you to think about these things, to try to bring the Civil War closer, because these people are just like us. It wasn't all that long ago. So do whatever you've got to do. Get out to a battlefield, read your favorite book, and really try to read their letters. And you'll see that their cares and their needs are just like ours. Don't take a wet clay photo of you and your friends holding iPads and iPhones, and you'll see that it's just a matter of format to bring this up. I would say that, you know, after you've done the accounts and taken the photos and everything like that, that there's no more effective way, and I'm a little bit biased on this, than to get out to battlefields and do it themselves, because you can hold the stuff that they use, you can uh, um, look at pictures and read what they wrote, but it's the land itself. This is where the stuff actually transpired. And for 100, for 75 years, the U.S. government, I'm sorry, 100 years, the U.S. government preserved about 75,000 acres of, of hallowed ground, of hallowed Civil War battlefield land. Civil War Trust has preserved not more than 40,000 in the last 15 years. So for those of you who are members, those of you who are not members and you use some of our stuff, please keep doing this uh, stuff so much. Uh, we don't have much time left to save this land, and I'll thank you for that and for coming out tonight. Yeah, there were Confederate photographers. In fact, there are hundreds of them. There's, there's, I think, 15 of them in Charleston alone um, at that time. But again, they quickly ran out of chemicals. So some of these guys had their chemicals and took documentary photos during the uh, Civil War itself. But they quickly ran out, and those who had them really focused their efforts upon making money, staying alive, taking portraits of soldiers in their studios. There's one other thing, too, is that of the thousands, at least 3,000 photographers in America at the time, only a few dozen 
and had either the money or the ability to take photos outside their studios. It's a very complex process back then, and having a mobile darkroom dark room wagon and getting out into the field, having the permission to hang out with the armies, to be embedded with them, was very difficult and expensive. So you have George S. Cook occasionally taking photos around, um, actually from Fort Sumter, because he had permission to go there, but really it's just a handful. I'd say 98% of documentary photos, 99% are taken by Union photographers, and those Confederate ones are usually taken in 1861. Sir? I read a book about uh, George Thomas, but they said that his map making department used a sort of photographic process to reproduce maps for his generals. Could you explain how that worked? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are actually photos of some of this equipment, but really it's pretty simple. They had a, a telephoto lens. It was a it was a regular-looking boxy camera, but the lens is a big cone, and it came out from it, and it allowed them somehow to take a nice, close-up, accurate picture. So to copy maps, they are literally making a wet plate negative of it, and then they are making prints of that wet plate negative. Now, ideally, that negative would be an imperial size, 11 by 17 or something like that, and then they could print these things at extraordinary detail. They also did have some early enlargers where they could actually print them a little bit larger by projection too. So um, I've been asked this before and I don't know how common it was. I know that George Barnard is doing it around uh, uh, Nashville um, under contract for the US government. I know Andrew Russell, um, who was in our quiz, was actually doing that kind of work as well. You also have artists hand remaking maps. So I don't think it's terribly common because you know there's only so many places where the generals you know, have that great of a need for maps where they're going to get moving. Uh, Nashville and out to Chattanooga was a great example of exactly what they needed in order to be able to move um, toward Atlanta or to defend Chattanooga against enemy attack um, or Nashville itself. So I don't find it terribly common, but it's actually a simple process. The same process that they had to use if they wanted to copy a daguerreotype or a tintype, those things that made single positives. They just took another picture of it. That picture of the pure pyramid, where was that taken? You That's Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. And the pyramid is still there. Not know the pyramid of when? Oh, I'm sorry. I do not know, but I assume it's Camp Cameron outside of Washington, D.C. in 1861. Um, those guys are dressed like some of the New York Blue Bloods who were kind of, uh, you know, playing soldier for 90 days and managed to escape service in some of the places around Bull Run and whatnot. Many of them would be enlisted in other regiments, but that's a guess. Right. Sir? Can I that photo? What's that? Yes, I'd be glad to, Bill. Thank you very much. Um, so this is a battlefield. This is taken from a fort called Fort Welch, named after a guy, uh, Norval Welch, uh, who held the part of the line on Little Round Top, but expired in 1864. I'm sorry, was killed in 1864, and the fort was named after him. This is what we call the Breakthrough Battlefield, and this is three years ago. You would have been looking into a complete set of woods. And there was only a couple of fields that were actually open, but this was all going for the trust cleared 160 acres of land here. We bought this years ago, but only recently embarked upon uh, this clearing project. You make a lot of money. In this case, uh, more than $200,000 when you clear this much land, but then you find uh, that the cost of grinding the stumps and reseeding the land and lining the soil cost $200,000. <laughs> uh, so we did do it almost break even. We also had to take down buildings and a hog farm and anything like that, but we had Recently, just this April, uh, in time for the 150th anniversary, actually opened up uh, this property. And now there's a Civil War Trails walking trail that connects with the National Park Service land and the land that is Pamplin Historical Park in the background. It's the biggest reclamation or re deforestation project the Trust has ever done. And it's just beautiful. We were just out there for our annual conference. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Any other questions about Civil War Trust? I like that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> or otherwise. I'll still be here if you have any other questions. Um, this is the only roundtable to which I've ever belonged. Um, I joined here in 1992. Personally, I haven't been a member in a while, but uh, I was a Lettuce Entertainment Manager, and we worked six nights a week, and I never once came to a meeting. Um, and then I moved to Gettysburg, right, that, that very year, but I've never joined another one, and uh, I find that appropriate as the oldest and coolest in the coolest town. Thank you.